Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1008 with Ed Doherty. I, I tell people, you want to be, be a leader? Basically, there's a handful of things that I would suggest. You know, Well, first, you got to like people. Because if you don't, then if it's all about you, like you said earlier, people know that. They're not going to follow you. You got to be a student of human nature, man. You got to learn how people tick, how you tick. And then you got to take 100% responsibility for your own shit, right? Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, Profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your guest needs? Redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter. Reachify is powerful and flexible. For example, with advanced automation and caller deflection, Reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverts callers to online actions. Reachify also simplifies workflows for your team, enabling them to operate more efficiently to attract, retain, and engage callers effectively. Reachify, be in control of the conversation you want to have when you're able to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest founder of One Degree Coaching, Ed Doherty. My man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I feel great. Dude, I'm excited to have you here. Your friends in Philadelphia told me I need to get in touch. Uh, and, you know, they were both Greg and um, I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden. Al. This is so embarrassing. Greg and Al uh, had amazing things to say about the work you, you did with them and how you helped them scale their business. They were both amazing guests. So yes. if they're going to you for advice. I don't even know. Like they, they, they were so impressive. They, they know their stuff. So this is going to be an amazing episode. I cannot wait to dive into it. Let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote and mantra. What do you got for us? Well, I love happiness is good business. That's uh, what I'm about. I'm about building great, happy workplaces where people can work in a wonderful, creative, cohesive way. I love that. And it kind of reminds me of a sentiment I like to echo that doing good is good business. Mm. And that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. It's funny because when I started this podcast, I was like, I'm going to crack the codes. In the where you don't go, go ahead. You know, that's it. It's, it's, it's the patterns that I saw throughout my career in the codes. That's really 
where I'm coming from. Crack the code. Well, it's funny because they're not secrets. No. These are the things they teach you in first grade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like don't hit anybody. Right. You know, be nice to other people. Uh, just like the things that we're like the most basic things we're taught are the secrets to this industry. They are. Um, do you, but, so, but they're counterintuitive. Why is there? Well, we're built the way that our our minds are built, the way we are built as humans. What we do naturally is not always what's best. Um, we're, we're still pretty tribal, primitive creatures, and uh, we are our lesser angels <laughs> are not always the best way to get people to work together well. So when I hear you say that, what goes to my mind is our anxieties and the, the frontal lobe kicking in, telling us that we need to be fearful of certain things. It's like our strength and our weakness is this frontal lobe because we, we make things up. We can right. develop fears. Is that, was that where you're referencing? Exactly. Yeah. Our limbic brain drives all of our behaviors, but it has no capacity for language. And it also is extremely, um, it's great at, at, at defense. It's not great at connection. Mm. So it, it's, uh, it's something you have to learn. It's technique and, uh, so leadership really is not a natural thing. There's no natural born leaders, in my opinion. Yeah, I think this is probably something we're going to tap into because you did say you wanted to talk about enlightened leadership. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're kind of getting into that right now. Already. So this is a teaser. We're going to be <laughs> That's right. diving deeper into that as the interview Great. evolves. But um, where where does it make sense to start sharing your story? 30 years in the industry. Take me to the beginning. Uh, lost soul. <laughs> uh, d- needing purpose and uh, found belonging in, in the restaurant business. So started out as a dishwasher, uh, did it for beer money, you know, in high school. And uh, I remember the last day of my not so great job as a terrible line cook at a average restaurant in a mall, taking off my apron, dropping it into the bin as I went off to college and saying, I'll never work at another effing restaurant as long as I live. <laughs> and 40 years later, here I am. That's awesome. So where you, you were a lost soul. Mm-hmm. Was this so you went to school, went to college? Mm-hmm. What did you go to school for? Well, basically was a near-to-well high school kid during the 70s. You know, I graduated in high school in 1974 mm-hmm. and, and really didn't know what I wanted to do. So um, I actually flunked out of high school, uh, <laughs> spent my senior year summer in uh, summer school when everybody else was having fun, and uh, went to a uh, two-year school that uh, that uh, specialized in highly motivated underachievers, basically losers. And <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I found my kind of a leadership path there, and I don't want to delve into that too much, but I always worked in restaurants. I continued to work in restaurants. I, I did well enough at uh, this small school to go to the University of Delaware, and I said, well, I'll be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. It never resonated with me. Continued to work in, in restaurants, and uh, I worked at the Faculty Alumni Club for the University of Delaware, the Blue and Gold Club, and I worked with this chef. His name was Bill, and he went to this place called the CIA, and it was when it was in Connecticut. It's not the great CIA you know of now. It was like way back when. This guy was drunk. <laughs> and, you know, I'm plowing away doing my student teaching in Wilmington, which in a, in a poor section of Wilmington. And uh, here's this chef showing up for work, getting drunk. Uh, <laughs> and I walked up to him one day and I said, hey, Bill, um, can I ask you a personal question? Because I just got an offer to be a teacher in Wilmington School District for like $14,000 a year. We're talking 1978. 
And he's like, yeah, what's up? And I was like, hey, man, like you come in here every day, you, you start drinking, then you pass out in the Rathskeller. What do you make a year? And he was like, I make 30000 a year. And I was like, damn, I want to do that. And that's literally how I got into the restaurant business. Well, I, you mentioned something earlier, and it's definitely a pattern that I picked up on that people who do really well in this industry tend to not do well in school or like other verticals. Right. What, what do you think is going on there? I had undiagnosed ADHD, uh, but back in the day, they just called it bad. So yeah. I was always a bad kid. I was, I was, um, you know, you're talking about the 1950s and 60s, right? So I'm 67 years old. I'm not a spring chicken, but I was in this child who had great optimism. Um, I had a zest for life, and I just kept telling people, just kept telling me in the system that I was stupid. Right. And um, I'm far from it, obviously, but um, I, I created a narrative for myself that I was, I was just wasn't good enough and I was dumb and I didn't see a path forward. So I just started to act out and got involved in bad behaviors and, you know, the 70s, right? <laughs> right. And uh, so, yeah, so I found a pirate ship called the restaurant business where I could be a captain and a swashbuckler and... You know, when I read Bourdain's uh, original book, I was like, that's exactly, I'm the pirate too. And um, so, yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot of us pirates. Well, that resonates with me. I mean, I'm the same story. I, I came up through the 90s and into the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So the school system had kind of opened up their eyes a little bit and realized, oh, there's different learning styles. Uh, but still, I remember when I was a kid, like they would put you into like a group and they would say, hey, like, all the dummies get up and walk out. Bingo. That <laughs> was me. It, it gives you such a complex as, mm -hmm. a, as a young person. I think the school system had the right intentions, right? But as a kid, you're just like, what's wrong with me? Right. So like me, I'm ADHD, colorblind, and dyslexic. Yeah, you yeah. Know? me too. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like every there's a lot of people who are like you and I who would gravitate to this industry for some reason. But when we get here, we excel. I, would, I don't know if you know or if you've done any research. Is there a correlation between social and emotional intelligence and people who tend to have ADHD and dyslexia? Like, are yes. we giving up some some like a, a intelligence to gain other intelligence? Like, mm -hmm. That's kind of how the mind works yeah. usually. Like, it always bounces out. Like you say, you're saying yes. Where is this? Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, where do you, is there data that supports this? Yeah, well, you, you know Simon Sinek, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, some people think he's great. Some people don't. Uh, I think he's he's a codifier, and I was listening to, to a talk he did recently, and he What's was saying, a codifier. A codifier. What is that? Uh, somebody sees patterns. Uh, I, and, I think I'm a codifier, uh, man. Yeah, yeah. They see patterns, and uh, I'm a codifier. So I I help companies write their their cultural codification. That's one of the things I do for organizations. I did it with Defined, with Al and Greg, and so. I can see patterns in things, and he, he said that he did research, and again, I haven't delved into it, so um, that people with ADHD and these other disabilities tend to have this ability to, to see patterns. They, they learn how to, to group things together. They want to diagnose and group things together because the world's scattered for them. So they're, they're always trying to say, let's put this in a pile, let's put this in a pile, and, and then what's these common things that, that, uh, that, that, that kind of pull this whole mess together. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm definitely 
capable of doing that. Yeah. I mean, the way I listening to you, what's going through my mind is I always say I'm a big picture person. Mm -hmm. Like I see the big picture as clear as day, but when it comes down to like the, like getting into the mud, Mm -hmm. the details, uh, I'm not right. I've never been good at that stuff. Like I get lost in the details. Yeah, and we're going to talk about this later, but that's PI. Okay. PI actually uh, looks at these four different factors, and uh, I'm and uh, I'm a maverick in PI language, and that's a, a out of the box, big picture thinker who uh, has an innovative approach, um, this real sense of optimism, but they never give up. And I'm like, so Simon Sinek would call you a Y guy. I'm a, I'm a Y guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm definitely a Y guy. Yeah. And so I in in. My journey culinarily, you know, here I was a sous chef in this faculty alumni club. It was absolute garbage, by the way. And I had no, there was no, you know, there was no online research. I used to go get, uh, I had three books. I had La Technique, I had La Méthode, and I had Julia Child's The Art of French Cooking. (laughs) And I would would just use these books to kind of figure stuff out because you couldn't go online and watch a YouTube video, right? It didn't exist. And... What I, I found out is that I wasn't that good, <laughs> but I had this like leadership quality and it was basically optimism. It was basically, I was this energy that would come into a space and I would find people I could work with that, that would coalesce around this, this idea of, 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 uh, what turned out to be belonging. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, because I was, you know, a little background about, you know, my why and how my why evolved, you know, my mom and dad were great people and they were, they were lovely, but they had me when they were 36 and, you know, I had a brother and sister and uh, they were adopted and we had this really weird kind of clan and there wasn't a lot of safety and belonging at my house. So I would spend an inordinate amount of time out in the street because, you know, back in the day, they just let you run around. Uh, <laughs> I was I was born in the wrong decade. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You, Actually, what? the 90s weren't so bad. But now, if I was a kid, oh my God. Well, the parents would get arrested. You got a chip on you, practically. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we were just... I can't believe how much freedom I had. Right. So, I was out in the street. And again, I wasn't in the wilds of, you know... I wasn't in a, a hood, per se. But I was in a nice neighborhood. But I created these groups and I was always in charge because I didn't have safety and belonging at home. I had an older brother who had some issues. He was very violent and uh, it it caused me just to go out and and create that family group in the street. So I'm this little guy, right? You know, uh, all of 105 pounds and I have these big guys around me and they're listening to me. So I realized that there was this energy and this way of connecting with people that they would give you permission to be their boss. And I learned that very, very early, like as a child and that, that became my leadership style later. Interesting. So thank you for getting into that. You're in your timeline. You're talking to this guy. He's getting drunk every day. He's on the couch. You find out he's making 30,000, which in the eighties, this is the eighties now, seventies, 1979, seventies, early eighties. That's good money. That's Mm -hmm. probably what the equivalent to like 60,000 today. Yeah. Maybe more. more, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you say, this is for me. This is the pirate ship I want to be mm-hmm. on. Um, this was kind of a tipping point for you because you were lost at this point. This was it. Yeah. yeah. I told my mother, like, I went home and told my mother that I was going to be a chef and she cried because <laughs> there was no, you know, food network where you go like, oh, Bobby Flay, you know? Right. It was just like, oh, she imagined this guy like in a, in, in a diner, you know, the greasy spoon chef, right? Like, what a loser. And my parents, you know, aspired to 
better things. They were folks that came out of the Depression, out of World War II, and they yeah. were hoping for this traditional path for their son. And, you know, I was the only one born to the family. My brother and sister adopted. So, you know, there was that. Um, and I just totally disappointed them time and time and time again. And this was the final insult. Oh. And I just remember my mom just bawling her eyes. Oh, what do you mean, chef? What's a chef? You know, later on, you figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, so, yeah, I worked at the Faculty Alumni Club. And um, then I got this opportunity after I told my mom and dad that I would not be going on to be a teacher, although I am one now still, that I would um, – I got this – job at this little cafe in Newark, Delaware, that turned out to be just a runaway smash that I just happened to step into. And that was the next part of my career. So uh, you also said something too, that you were, ne- you would never become a teacher, but what, like in their eyes, right? Mm. The best restaurant tours are the best teachers. Oh yeah. And that's the thing. It's not about them. It's about everyone else. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I'm sure that'll probably come out in your story too. So you found this this cafe mm-hmm. in Delaware. Mm-hmm. Well, why was this so impactful? It was called Goodfellows and it was a husband and wife. And remember, this is restaurant renaissance. Everybody's faking restaurant. Like there's no, there's no blueprint, right? So like in the restaurants um, – in in Philadelphia and everywhere at that time, there were doctors and lawyers and teachers and people who were in different disciplines that were getting into the restaurant business, and they had no, there was no... No clue. No clue. Yeah. And so everybody's in there just winging it, right? And so I was winging it, they were winging it, and, and uh, these this lovely couple, um, she um, had hired a chef, and uh, he was the front of the house, and he self-taught you know, uh, sommelier <laughs> loosely. Um, and she's in the back of the house. She had a vision. She was an English, uh, she had a degree in English. And one day the chef walks out, just walks out and it's small. I mean, it was like 45 seats and then she's just forced to cook. Right. So she jumps on, it turns out she's freaking awesome. And by the time I wandered in there, there was a buzz going on that this woman who was a female chef, by the way, 1980 right now, this woman is actually got some chops. She's got something. So he's running in the front of the house and they're doing a really amazing job. And it was fine dining in its 80s kind of way. She's in the back of the house. She needs somebody. She puts an ad in, in the um, local paper. I'm looking at one ad because I wanted to get out of the faculty alumni club. And uh, she's from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And so am I. She saw on my resume that I was from Cherry Hill. And that's why she asked me to come in because we were from the same neighborhood, you know, in Delaware, I was in New Jersey, Cherry Hill. Right. So, um, I go in there and it's just, it, it's one of those classic, you know, uh, Garland ranges had the flat top with the broiler under it and this eight burn six burners and, and two little convection ovens down below. And that was it. That was the entire kitchen. I was just putting on garnish. My job was to make the bread, come up with a vegetable and, you know, and then garnish the plates. And she would do all of the cooking and it would go out and I would make sure everything was good, wipe the plates. And then one day, this guy named George Perrier shows up. You know, George Perrier from Philadelphia. He was... I don't actually. Yeah, well, George, it it was the chef in Philadelphia and went on to uh, be one of the top chefs in the world. He heard about her. He came down. He started eating. And then these two other guys show up, Craig Claiborne, uh, who was the New York Times uh, food critic, and Pierre Franet, 
who was the 60 Minute Gourmet, which was his partner at the New York Times. And these luminaries who in the day were, you know, the chef gods of the day started showing up. And there was a buzz around her. And um, she was the first uh, chef on a uh, female chef that was in the top 10 food and wine, you know, top 10 chef thing. And I'm standing next to her. And uh, I, I just, by absolute coincidence, I got swept up in this whole amazing journey for her. And then I became delusional. I thought it was, I, I thought I was talented <laughs> and I was not. And, uh, so. Did this come back to bite you at some point? <laughs> yeah, because I was basically putting parsley on a plate and yeah. I was like, hey, look at me. I'm hanging out with Pierre Fraudet, you know, going out to dinner with George Perrier. And, uh, um, there's actually a movie about George called King George. Um, I think, you know, now that you say it, there's yeah. so many names out there. It's hard to keep track, especially the, the French names all kind of sound the same to me. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, so I, eventually I went on to Philadelphia and then I found out just that I, didn't have anything so that was but you got something man because here you are today and i think you're you hadn't at this point in your journey you haven't found out what your it factor is yet right you're i mean would you consider yourself a a talented chef today or Mm -mm. when did you realize that you weren't a talented chef um all the time yeah the entire time um i was painfully aware that i was mediocre and that i had to build i had an overarching vision of what everything could be because I'm a big, I'm like you, the ADHD, the ADHD guys, they have that big picture view of the world. I had the dream and I had to learn how to create the components. I had to say, what is, <laughs> what are the parts in this that, that uh, I can't do? So and at I, this point in your journey in Delaware, the cafe, you have a dream. Is the dream, oh yeah. is, is this the same theme, the same dream throughout your career or did you pivot? Great what question. was the dream? The dream was that I would be a famous chef. <clears throat> So that's not what happened. Um, in a burgeoning, no. Uh, I was regionally known, <laughs> okay. you know, in Philadelphia in the 1980s and 80s and 90s. And I did some things that were pretty cool. But um, I wanted to be like a star. Yeah. And, um, you know, I in, in high school, I had worked in uh, Summerstock Theater. And so I had this like little bit of theater in me. And, um, you know, so I had that going on. I was a theater minor at the University of Delaware. And I, you know, I was a little, little you know, <laughs> a little delusional. So um, when I went, I decided to go to Philadelphia and, you know, go to the big city, right, and and become, you know, the next great chef, uh, knowing in the back of my head that I guess that I didn't know much. But at this point, I was, you know, to use the word again, I was pretty delusional. And I went and I interviewed at this place called La Terrasse. And anybody who knows La Terrasse, Ellen Yin, by the way, that, that we were. She worked there. She worked there. Yeah. I missed her by a few months. I was there before her. Um, I went in there, interviewed by Judy Wicks, who opened up the White Dog Cafe. Um, and Judy was the manager. It was the oyster bed of like, just like everybody, right? Came out of there. So many amazing restaurants were born out of that institution. It was at the University of, of Pennsylvania campus. Uh, it had been around since the 1960s, and it had morphed into just this amazing place. And in Philadelphia at the time, in 1981, when I went up there, there were a handful of restaurants. You know, Stephen Starr wasn't, you know, wasn't in the scene yet. What was the year you just said? 1981. Yeah. So this group of people that were in this restaurant were extraordinary. But you know, the, the bottom line is I was interviewed. I really believed that I could cook. 
And I went into this French restaurant. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I learned like within moments that I was way in over my head. So we have 42 years to cover at this point in your mm-hmm. journey, right? Because it's still 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, just doing a little bit of research this morning, I saw that <clears throat> you your first... And correct me if I'm wrong. The first partner, the first business you were an owner in was the um, Capital Grill, managing partner. Managing partner. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the evolution like? What were the like between this point in 1981, mm-hmm. 19 years? Right. Where were the key evolution? Or where were the tipping points for you as a, yeah, as a professional? Great. Yeah, we'll pop pop around. So. The key was at La Terrasse, I realized that I couldn't cook, right? So I um, I had this spirit and energy, as I said before, that was contagious. And you couldn't get away with what I did. I mean, again, I had my cookbooks. I'd run to the locker, you know, and, and look stuff up when the chef was like, make us some holidays. I was like, the what? Um, and so I was able to fake it till I made it. And within two and a half years, I became the executive chef at La Terrasse. Wow. And, and I still was not that good but I was able to build teams. And then I just went to the white dog with Judy and helped her get started, um, which went on to be an institution in Philadelphia. And then I just, I just kept popping, you know, I'd spend like three or four years at different series of restaurants, ended up at La Campagna in the nineties. And that was uh, the, the top, the, the peak of my, my culinary reputation. But at the end of the day, um, I just kept getting this calling to be a a leader more than a chef that I started to I started to see that there was this thing inside of me that wanted to build different types of workplaces than than the traditional ones we were in. What do you mean by different? How did you want it to be different? Well, first, I mean, if we're going to get personal, um I'm um I'm a reformed a-hole. I mean, I, I was, you know, people tell me I was great, but I know I wasn't. I was, I was not overly nice. I, I took, you know, I went to Paris and studied there for a while and I really learned from Michelin chefs how to be an asshole. Yeah. Can I say that? Yeah. You can say far worse. I mean, let's be honest. We're talking to restaurant owners. Right, right, right. So I'm, uh, I'm a reformed asshole. That's what I call myself. I had this moment where I was drinking too much and I was partying too much. What's drinking too much look like? Give me, give me alcoholism. Um, I couldn't stop drinking. Now I never drank during the day, but at night you're a chef in Philadelphia in the 1980s. You can go wherever you want. It's free. It's free drugs. Right. And it's, uh, and I wasn't a big drug guy, but I was. I, I mean, alcohol is a drug. At the end of the day, yeah. I think it's weird how society separates alcohol True. from drugs. It's a drug. Yeah, it is. Not trying to call you a druggie, but I'm just saying. No, I'm an alcoholic. Can we just be honest? <laughs> alcohol is a drug. It is. <laughs> yeah, but so I got get really caught up in alcohol. And um, so in one moment, um, I looked in the mirror. I had this lovely woman who I was dating. I'd already ruined one marriage. I had a four-year-old daughter. And... Um, that came apart. And I looked in the mirror one day and said, number one, you're drunk. And number two, you're an asshole. And that, that moment, I, I even know the date, <laughs> it was April 20th of 1990. I, uh, went on a new path and the new path was learning how to be a better person and, uh, learning how to be a better leader, how to be a, you know, a better boyfriend. My, 
that woman, by the way, is now my wife, and we have three kids. But the bottom line is, is that I really consciously started a path to enlightenment, you know, and I'm not using that word like I was, you know, became a yogi, but I, I wanted to be a better man. <laughs> How old were you at this point in 91? Not to date you. Yeah, I was born in 1956, so I was 32-ish. It's about the time that a lot of men start to achieve Mm self-awareness, and they start going, "Uh oh. (laughs) I mean, I think that's kind of, I feel like, so, I mean, we didn't take similar paths, but I I really do resonate with what you're sharing, because I see a lot of myself in you as far as strengths and weaknesses go, Mm. and I'm just starting to realize, like, even, like, through this podcast, talking to successful restaurateurs, like, the reason why I started the show was so I could learn how to be a successful restaurateur Mm. and then use the money that, that I generate from the show to open restaurants and the more i started learning from p- different people's stories i'm like oh shit maybe i shouldn't do this stay, be- <laughs> stay behind the mic my friend. <laughs> yeah i don't think i'd be a great restaurateur i don't think i'd be a great chef because i don't have certain skills that are necessary yeah um but what you're saying is i i, I agree with this you don't if you're trying to be everything you will never be successful i think that I the only way I'm ever going to be a successful restaurateur is by surrounding myself in in building teams with, mm-hmm. with people who are super that's talented. Right. And that's the most successful restaurateur. Yeah. So it's weird it's like it's like this this but like I feel like I see that in you too. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so so better it, leader, better person. Yeah. Um yeah, and that. and um you know, and then I was told in AA that I couldn't be in the restaurant business anymore. And then luckily somebody tapped me on the shoulder and went, uh, yes, you can just don't drink. I was like, okay, I was going to go. Why why did they tell you that? Oh, well, you know, there's a lot of opinions and you know, uh, listen, AA really helped me. Not only great codification, by the way, the 12 steps are big part of how I figured out the one degree methodology that I use to teach leaders. Um, it was interesting, right? You take these people who are like in the verge of killing themselves to them being these enlightened individuals, right? If the percentages aren't great, <laughs> I'm, I'm somebody that actually like stopped drinking and never had another drink. The, the relapses are everywhere. But at the end of the day, I took it really seriously because of my nature and my optimism and all that. And, uh, really ju- jumped in like I jump into everything. So when they said you can't be around alcohol and, one or two people had an opinion and said, you can't be around alcohol. It means you can't work in restaurants. You just can't. I was like, yes, sir, I won't. And somebody, thank God. Well, you kind of remind me of uh, Mickey Basque. I don't know if that name's familiar. Yeah. Ben's Friends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he he was on the show. Same, similar story where he was like, a, like he told his story. He was a raging alcoholic yeah. on the verge of death. Like was, like he, the only calories he consumed was from alcohol. Mm. Like, he almost died, you know, like bad, 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 uh, same thing. Like, and he was an amazing host. Like he was a front of house person. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you can't work in the restaurant industry. And he right. was like, this is all I know. This is all, this is what I do. Yeah. Um, and the, the reason is, be, it's because you can't, they, they say alcoholism is, is associated with certain triggers, mm-hmm. right. And, and people and people, places and things. And that's work. Your yeah. work is your trigger. So and how do you overcome right. that? Well, I'm not a religious person, but this person said just obsessively, you know, he used the word pray, but I, I took it as differently. And I, I really did ask the universe that when I was at work to please give me the uh, respite away from this, can, this you know, this, this uh, compulsion to drink. 
And I really did. I was I really uh, mindfully, um, you know, worked on when I was flambéing that it was just a tool. It was a knife. It was a cleaver. It was a. It was whatever other tool I had there. And I talked myself into that when I was there, that I was safe. And then if I went anywhere else, people, places, and things, as they call it in AA, right? If I walked into a bar, you know and smelled that stale beer, I would the alarms would go off and I'd run out. But I was okay in my safe place, which was restaurants. Well, I'm not a religious person either, but it's funny because we see a lot of parallels in different cultures, uh, whether you're Buddhist or Catholic, meditation, prayer. I'm a recovering Catholic, yeah. Yeah, but like what happens when you pray is like you, you kind of shut your brain off. Mm-hmm. So there might be a trigger to go do something. Mm-hmm. Like you might smell that beer, yep. right? But and your your mind is like, oh, next thing is put beer in face. Mm-hmm. But if you stop and you breathe, right, then the the you reset the mind and you focus on the breath, and like it will pass. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what was happening? Yeah, yeah. I think it's like a mantra thing. You know, yeah. we started out with a mantra, and and I just kept telling myself that, and it worked. I don't I don't know how, and I never really looked into why. But I, I found that when I was at work that alcohol was not a problem. If I went anywhere else, the alarms would go off. Right. It was just very fascinating. So 1990 mm-hmm. to 2000, yeah. you're not an owner of a business yet. No. You, know, you're, you are executive chefing. You're, you're getting sober. You're realizing, hey, I'm not the most talented chef. However, I have this amazing ability to bring people together, to mm-hmm. lead. Yeah. When did you – was it before or after the sobriety that that started to really take shape? Well, like I said, I knew that in my childhood, but right, I never right. really made it for, a formulaic, you know. And then I, I once I started getting sober, the first thing I did is I read a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, my people. God, awesome book. So I was like, oh, human nature is a thing, right? So I, I tell people, you want to be, be a leader? Basically, there's a handful of things that I would suggest, you know. Well, first, you got to like people because if you don't, then if it's all about you, like you said earlier, People know that they're not going to follow you. You got to be a student of human nature, man. You got to learn how people tick, how you tick, and then you got to take a hundred percent responsibility for your own shit, right? So that's what my basic model for 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 leadership. I have a few other things that I've sprinkled on there, but but yeah, I mean, I I I realize you know you're talking from that ninety to two thousand. It stopped being about the food. And it started being about how can I get human beings to work together well? And it goes back to my origin story that I did not have safety and belonging at home. The, the, the restaurant business is full of, uh, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And people don't get along. I, spe- I realized I was spending an inordinate amount of time grinding the gears with this human being stuff. And I was like, how can we eliminate the noise and the static so we can get down to doing cool shit together? You know, I wanted to do cool shit. That's what I wanted to do. So I had this big vision of being awesome, like a team of people doing freaking awesome stuff. What man. is cool shit? I'm just curious. Like in your mind, just, what was cool shit? So this last week, you know, your friends and mine, the folks from Defined. Alan Greg. Yeah. One of one of their partners won a James Beard award. Right. And she was referred. She's behind the, what's her name again? Remind me. Uh, her name is Nock. Nock. And I'm not going to butcher her last name. But the Thai concept that just recently. Yeah. yeah. Kalia. Oh, my God. Ka- Be- we got to eat there. Greg, thank you mm. so much for yeah, yeah, taking yeah. us out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this, you know, I do leadership coaching for them. And I did, uh, I do this monthly all team management 
uh, coaching where I basically, we talk about a subject. Then I had this advanced class I do with them. And so Wednesday they were just back from Jape's beard and I was like, anything happening interesting this week? And the energy, right? Like you could just feel that, that pride doing amazing shit together is like, we grind, we grind, we grind, we grind. And every once in a while, Something happens, right? Where you James Beard Award, or you get this, or you get that, or you you get a nice review. But when you realize that you're just freaking awesome, when you put a bunch of people together who see the big picture, they understand it, they're purpose driven, they have mastery in what they do, and they're self directed, which is the three components of happiness at work. You get magic, and that drug, that magic, when people get together. And they're awesome together. That's that's to me everything, and in, in in the workplace. Give me those three components one more time. It's it's purpose. So work has meaning beyond the paycheck. Mastery, like really being good, and then autonomy, which is to be self directed and actually have independence because you're so freaking good. Is that from Daniel Pink's book? That's right. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah, was drive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's another one of my thought leaders that I follow. Um, and, and that, by the way, was a study done over decades, right, by, by basically the U.S. government. Um, pretty crazy. But, uh, and it didn't make any sense, right? What's this purpose stuff? Now we're in this new era where it's all about that. But, but anyway, what, when, when we, um, as, as, I, as I worked from chef and then I realized, you know, I had a, four children. Um, I was never home and I was trying to get a better quality of life for myself. So I started to I started to put together this plan that I got to get out of the whites because I would see these sixty year old chefs and I'd be like, dude, I do not want to be that dude. How do you think their body felt at <laughs> sixty years old doing I, that? I oh can't imagine now at my age, but I, I would see this one guy I saw. He had these bags on his leg. They were like airbags, like holding in his varicose veins. You oh. know, and I was like, not pretty. So I started devising this plan of like, how do I get out of the kitchen and move to the front of the house? So. Um, I left La Campagna, which was my f- last full-time um, chef job. Got to cook at the Beard House in this ni- 1996. That was fun. Um, there was talk about you know nomination, which didn't happen for me. But um, I got a gig at this place. It was a brand-new restaurant. And I they said, you're going to be the GM and you're going to be the uh, chef. So I opened up this restaurant. And uh, it was an Italian concept. And that's when I really started to, like, bear down on the whole leadership thing. That's when it uh, really started to take off for me. I think now is a great time to take our first break to think of sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about how things started to change. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. 
Greta will be leading the training, supporting you and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant. But during this no cost to you 60 day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurant tours out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurant tours don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And where we left off in your career, you kind of had this aha moment of like, hey, like, I I don't want to be in my 60s having compression <laughs> tights on my legs. Like, right. I, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna make it in this career, I need to transition to become a leader mm-hmm. and take it from there. And and when we go forward, like where like what was like the next transitional or pivotal tipping point for you? Like yeah. how did you get to that point? Like what was going on? Well, I was working at this restaurant I opened up and it was a pretty big success and I was this hybrid GM and chef and uh there was the Hula Hands Corporation for some unknown reason, I don't even remember why, approached me about helping them open up a seafood concept in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. And I'm like, Hula Hands, I don't work for you know, like to work for the man, you know, corporations, like forget it. That's soulless, you know, cesspool. I'm not going there, right? Chain restaurants. And then they told me how much they'd be paying me. Um, and I had, you know, four young children. <laughs> so was it more than 30,000? Yeah, definitely more than 30,000. I, I definitely broke through a ceiling there and I uh, became, you know, they, they were petrified because it was a, it was a uh, Fridays before. It was, uh, no, it was a Hula Hands, excuse me. And they were opening up these concepts called Devon, and they were really nice. They actually copied the design of the Oyster Bar in New York City. And they were really doing elevated seafood. It was actually really good. And they wanted to take my reputation and kind of say, well, Ed's kind of the owner here. And, uh, and they were, they were trying to feel hide about that now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, this is, that's really dumb, yeah. you know, and especially when, equity, if you want to call me the owner, right? that's right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, there was a big, there was a, a article that came out in one of the trade papers, like Darty and company, you know, and I was like each, and then the critic Craig LeBan found out that I wasn't and it, you know, didn't work out well a little bit until we uh, kind of figured it out. But anyway, um, it, it was there. I realized that there were all these systems that I was totally unaware of. You know, like mm. labor control, uh, mm. P and Ls. This is the nineties. Yeah this this is now this is nineteen ninety nine. Yes, yeah, yeah. this is when things the yeah. secrets start 
becoming available to the masses. But even yes. at this point, I feel like you needed money and access to to consultants, the people, the 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 key holders. Yes, you know this stuff wasn't like I'm thinking of my parents right now when they opened their restaurant, kind of like you were talking about. People were just weighing it. Yeah, right. Like, what are they charging down the street? Yeah. Okay, let's try to dollar less. Study they did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and this is where we start thinking like in menu engineering, right? right? Margins, like mm-hmm. like math. Yes. <laughs> Take it from there. Yeah, and they actually had culture there. Believe it or not, it was pretty cool. The uh, the uh, Hulahans was was trying to do a transition. They brought in Dan Scoggin, who was the inventor of, of Fridays, right? And they actually had a culture codification. They had this set of values, and they had this, like, mission statement. And, and then they had some amazing, like, labor controls and production sheets. And I'm like, whoa. And I felt like I was, like, a kid in a candy store. Um, and so I, I just really just bathed in that and really just loved it. And, uh, and about a year and a half later, um, I, I built the sales up and, uh, um, and I really wasn't paying attention to sales. I was never like top line driven, nor was I bottom line driven. I was always culture driven. I didn't know that, you know, I, just really quick to go back. Culture is a big part of, of every, of every organization. Right. And I didn't, they, no one, now everybody talks about culture. Like, you know, it's, it's like water, but you know, back in 19, 19- 80 when I met Judy Wicks. Judy Wicks taught me culture because she built a culture inside La Terrasse that made everybody awesome, you know, doing awesome things. We had this high level of pride. She was uh, dismissed <laughs> one day and I watched the entire organization crash within a matter of weeks. Mm. She was the glue. Weeks. She was the culture, right? Yeah. So, and, I, and we didn't talk about culture back then. So anyway, I started looking at this cultural codification these systems. I was like, wow, we could take the, if we could take the heart and soul of a mom, pa, like that great chef who has no discipline, (laughs) it's all about him. And we could take some of these systems. And then we could say to the chef, the owners, what do you care about? Where do you want to be when you grow up? Where are we going? What, what do you value? And then how can we find a bunch of true believers who can do that with you? Not people working for the paycheck, true believers. So that was really kind of the tipping point. So after about a year and a half at Devon Seafood Grill, like killing it, you know, with sales, just having fun building a team and kind of working on this whole mechanism that I was trying to figure out how I could take this to the masses, right? Um, the Capitol Grill came knocking. Uh, they noticed this busy place in Rittenhouse Square and they called me up. I didn't know who they were. They were a steakhouse chain out of uh, you know, Providence, Rhode Island, and then Atlanta. Started in 1990, so they were like 10 years in at this right. point. That's right. How many locations did they have? They had 11, and one had failed in San Francisco. So they were kind of like hurting right now. Ironically, it's always the one that's way the hell off right? that doesn't do well. That's right. <laughs> and they learned a lot from that. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so... Um, Turns out these guys were coming in and watching me run shifts because I was full blown, like front of the house at that point. And they were like, you know, I mean, they tell me they were like amazed by how I was one day, one minute I was in the expo and then the next minute I was like at the host stand and I was coaching and then coaching over here and coaching over there. And as basically I was a coach, right? So I, you know, they, they called me up. I said, I don't know who you guys are. And by the way, I'm making a lot of money and, you know, so, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. And, uh, <laughs> And the, and they said, come down to Atlanta. You know, we've we've uh, merged with another uh, with a big another company, and uh, we want you to meet a guy named Gene Lee. And I was like, okay, who's Gene Lee? 
He's like, he's our vice president. Gene Lee just retired, by the way, as the CEO of Darden. (laughs) So here's this guy. Um, I'm sitting in front of him in Atlanta. They give me four hours of testing, psychological, all this stuff and math. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to lose this job. And um, I sat in front of this like really quiet, unassuming, like wise old owl. And he, he said, Ed, do you know what we do here at Rare Hospitality? And I was like, um, I'm assuming we do hospitality, food, wine. You guys are into steaks, right? Yeah. And he was like, no. And he like took my head off. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, we're not about that. We just happen to be in the restaurant business. And he's the first person who introduced the idea of why to me. Mm. The he first said, idea of why? Just like, like, yeah, the codified why, like, no, we just happen to be in the restaurant business. What we're passionate about, what we believe in, what, we're, what we represent is a company that, that we're, we're people developers. And I was like, oh, shite. I'm in the right place here. I craft a lot on uh, corporate and franchises. I yeah. used to a lot more. When I first started this podcast, I was your stereotypical millennial, money's bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like the more I learned, the more I, I educated myself, the more I realized that, you know, these these, I think that, a lot of these big corporations kind of fell in the traps doing best practices and putting the bottom line over people at some mm-hmm. points. But, I, but what I'm realizing is that a lot of the people behind these organizations are really incredible. And like, mm-hmm. if you scale something like darting, right? Like if yeah. you're able to scale something like that, like you're doing some stuff, right? And you are creating opportunity. You are absolutely developing people. Yeah. So, I've opened my mind up a lot to it. I think we can find better balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I don't, I don't mean to. No, no, that was, that's cut exactly you short right. with my no, crap stories. No. <laughs> uh, the amazing thing is that this guy dropped into my head th- this thing that I always believed, but I never heard anybody actually say it. Now we were called Rare Hospitality. It was uh, Bugaboo Creek, which doesn't exist anymore. It's this animatronics, you know, like a Disney with stakes, you know, like a moose talking on the wall. There was Longhorn, right, as we know, which is a massive chain right now. And there was the Capitol Grill, and there was a couple other smaller um, um, organizations. So uh, Philadelphia Capitol Grill and, um, you know, the corner of Broadchest and about a block from City Hall. And um, I couldn't understand why they hired me. Number one, I knew nothing about steakhouses. Um and I was green as a manager. And you know, these guys had high aspirations. But they kept talking about this connection. You know, like, what if we could create a one-degree connection singularity throughout the entire organization where everyone sees the big picture, they believe in the values, and they live them to the best of their abilities. And then, you know, if you walk into any one of our restaurants – Everybody's unique in themselves, but they all have this attachment to this understanding of what we are as a group, and and then you can flourish as an individual. And I was like, damn, that's deep. And so, which is essentially where I got the idea for one degree, right? So, I, uh, I, I, I was went to four months. You know, they 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 really were into training. They took. They said, you got to leave home. <laughs> I have these little kids, and my wife. I, you have to go to Providence, Rhode Island, the original Capital Grill, and you have to spend four months working your way out of the dish room into the management position. So they had this competency-based training, which was unbelievably cool. And they said, just shut up 
just work your way out, get humble. And I started in a dish pit as a 40-some-year-old, you know, fairly experienced chef and restaurateur and worked my way out. And it was it was amazing. And then I went and I opened up this restaurant and we had the Palm across the street and the Palm owned the city. The mayor ate there every lunch. All the Poles ate there. It was like the place. It was like the hub of activity, like where everyone went to see be seen. So I was across the street from that and Morton's and Ruth Chris and everybody's like, who's this Capitol Grill? And by the way, we just had a failure in San Francisco. So they were real cautious. They said, Ed, if you could just do five million a year, man, just get it to five mil. And I said, well, how am I going to do that? They said, don't worry about anything. Don't look at the P&L for about 18 months. And I'm like, what? Because I just got taught from the Hulahan people that the P&L was everything. Don't look at the P&L for 18 months. I want you to do two things. Live the values and, and nurture your team. It's, it's all about the team. And I was like, okay, I'm good with that. And uh, while you're at it, run for mayor. You know, like go out, out there and just really, you know, just be yourself. Because they knew I was this gregarious guy. And I was like, okay. And I actually took them by their word. Like, I thought you were saying I actually ran for mayor. I was no, like, no, no. Actually, <laughs> well, I got to know the mayor really well. But that's another story. But, but you took them um, for the word. So I just, that, that was me in AA and everything I did. Like if you told me what to do and I bought in, I'm all in, right? I'm like, let's go. So, you know, they gave me this beautiful horse and I was the jockey and I just rode it. And um, I remember this one time, you know, I was concerned about something with the bottom line within the first 18 months. Got a call from Gene Lee. What did I tell you? Don't worry about whether you're profitable or not. I'm like, Okay. So what is the, why, why is that the mentality? What was his approach? What was he thinking? What was the strategy behind that? Because what a lot of, because we were managing partners, right? So we were like these little kind of owners. We had to, by the way, we had to buy our way in. It was a public company at this point. It had just gone public. We had to buy stock to become a managing partner. And they kept that. And we had a five-year contract we had to live in. And so we had a lot to lose. By the way, they paid me half of the salary that Houlihan was paying me, but there was this bonus program that could make me a lot of money. I didn't even know how it worked. I didn't even care. <laughs> that, that's me. And so my wife was upset with me for about a year and a half until we started making bank. But um, the bottom line is, is that all the managing partners were smarter than me. They were the guys doing the math and they were looking at the bottom line and they kept saying, if you are pulling back labor, not buying enough glassware, not buying enough silverware, not having the right food, you know, in, in the walk. And if you're not dry aging enough beef, because we dry aged our own beef, we're not going to, we got to create, even if we're losing, we got to create this feeling, right? It was all about this hospitality feeling. And if you did that, and I think Gene Lee said to me once, that's why the CFO is not running the company, right? Don't let a bean counter run your company if yeah. you want great culture and you want you want profits and it was in the early 2000s where i think this people was 2001 started, yeah where there was there was like this i would say from like the mid 80s to the 90s it was all about the bottom line mm-hmm. right and then they started to realize holy crap you can go too far with this right you can go too far with this where the bottom line will stifle culture and then the leading concepts the leading brands were like aha you need systems processes procedures and in, in the bottom line and p&ls however First comes culture. Yes. You need that shit, but it can never replace culture. And the the smartest operators started realizing like it's actually culture first. Culture eats processes for breakfast or whatever the saying is. 
but you need it. You need both. Yep. yep. And, and, and they, it's, they, so it was around the time where they started prioritizing culture. And I feel like the rest of the industry was like four or five, six, seven years behind. Right. Right. And that's when like culture became the mainstream and like success. Yes. Yeah. So that's a great point. Um, this book came out too, right? Good to great. If you've ever read yep. Good to Great, it was a study of these 11 public Jim companies. Collins. That's right. Yep. Jim Collins. And it was the opposite. It was counterintuitive. It didn't make sense. What do you mean? They were going to have this, this humble dude, like a Gene Lee, quiet, unassuming, who took total responsibility and gave credit to everybody, and but was, had this incredible business will and had a set of values. And then they get the best people and spend a lot of money on people. And and they, they just get the right people in the right seats in the bus. Then they figured out their hedgehog, you know, what are you passionate about? How can you make money? And and what can you be the best at in the marketplace? And you keep those three Venn diagrams aligned. And then uh, face the brutal fats every day, but don't give up hope. And it was like, wait a minute, this is the opposite. Then strategy like was like way down the road. Everybody was doing strategy back then. It was the Welsh era, right? It was the Jack Welsh era. It was just like, you know, people are part of a cog and a and it just blew that whole idea up. And these guys were ahead of it. Like Gene Lee was way ahead of that. And so um, I was this happy idiot. And, and I mean that with with great respect for myself, who was just like, okay, I'll do that. you know. And then all my other managing partners were trying to like, game the system. So I went on not only to break every record in the Capital Grill ever had, I got the business up to sixteen million dollars a year Damn. with a hundred and eighty seats. With that single location or the One entire location? Wow! So you, I blew cleared it that five up. Million. Wow! I blew it up. So all my theories and their theories came together. I just was a great jockey in this amazing horse that they gave me. They gave me a lot of support, and they really were into leadership leadership training they were constantly pulling us out let's go down to atlanta and they do this whole leadership thing and they wanted you to do it with your team so it was really about leadership training and culture and connection and and uh getting buy-in and all that and um i just blew it up and so i you know every year in these chains they have these award ceremonies right so I, we would go to disney one year and we go to here or there and i'd be the guy always walking across the stage like gm of the year People developer of the year, you know, top grossing, you know, top, you know, bonus structure. I was, and and people would come up to me, these other managing partners and go, Psst, hey man, come here. What are you doing? Well, I'm just living our values and I'm, I'm, I'm living our culture and I'm taking care of our people. We're building a great, no, what are you really doing? I was like, no, I'm actually just doing that. Well, what about your bonus? How are you figuring it out? I don't know how my bonus works. I, I, I did it. <laughs> I, I've never been good at now? math. I do. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't mind getting I had into this that nice mention. man named Adam Shapiro, and he, he he explained it to me. He was one of my he was my bar manager, and he was like, "Do you know how this actually works?" I'm like, "No, but boy, I just got a check for sixty grand for a quarterly check." I don't know how grand. it works, but it works. <laughs> so it works if you work it right. You, they, you keep on yeah. going back to just living the core values yes. and nurturing the team. Yes, uh, and and you never ran for mayor, but get involved with the community, mm-hmm. right? Um, what were the core values? Do you remember the Capitol Grill core values to this day? I don't. It's terrible. I remember one was we all look good together. We all look bad together. That was my favorite. We all look good together. We all look bad together. I and that wonder. was to tell the team that there's no front or back in the house. And that if we're going to win, we're going to win together. If we're going to lose, we're going to lose together. And it's it's basically 
personalities, it's principles over personality. So you had a star chef, like in a chain, you don't know who the chef is, right? (laughs) If you go down the street, it's the chef and the chef leaves and the restaurant goes out of business. I found, I found the Capitol Grill core values on flashcards. From when though? Because they don't know. I'm just want me to go through them. Yeah, go ahead. Number one, we treat each other with dignity, respect, honesty, integrity. This is the old ones. Number two, we hire great people, set clear expectations, we provide regular feedback, and we celebrate great performances. That's that. Yeah. Three, we function as a team. We looked good together. We wait. We look good together. We look bad together. That's one you just mm-hmm. said. We are committed to continuous training and development. We act. A, sorry. We act guest first. We do it right, or we fix it fast. The guest wins moment of truth. We believe in continuous improvement in getting. I think that's a typo. Getting F better. I think it's supposed to be a G getting better day by day and shift shift by by shift. shift. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's we're missing two. Oh, they're going to, they're making me sign up to get the last two of those bastards. All right. But yeah, well anyway, (laughs) and that's too many, by the way, Uh, I'm down to five values when I codify for when I help my clients codify their value system. I, I keep it at five now. Uh, that was eight and there was too many. But that, that I ran my company within a company on those. And it's been, you know, I left there in 06, so it's been a while. And I've written a lot of core values since then and helped a lot of people to try to create this codification so that people can work in harmony. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that was it. And it was just funny, you know, I was just... I was just that guy and uh, it was amazing. And I, it changed, it changed my life financially because, you know, I went from you know, a chef making 40, 50, $60,000 a year, which was pretty good back then. And then I got, I got into the six figures, you know, with hula hands. And that was amazing. I took a half pay cut to go to the Capitol grill. Cause I saw something had to tell my wife that we were going to be poor for a year. They even sent us to Disney World because they're trying to keep my head in the game. You know, they're like, well, send you to Disney World. They had free tickets, so it didn't really cost them anything. Um, meanwhile, we couldn't pay rent, but it was okay. Um, and then I started making unbelievable money beyond my dreams. And you said so, you saw something. What was it that you saw? What did I see there? You said you saw something. You took a half pay cut because you saw oh, something. Oh, because I saw the potential uh. um, in 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 the culture and the people, and it it wasn't the bonus. Um, I, I, I just, I just, I'm, I'm one of those people that drop that I jump out of airplanes without parachutes. Oh my God. We are so the same person. I literally just said this the other day in the, the 100, 1,000th episode that I am the kind, I just jump in yeah. and go, Oh shit. And then I jump out, right. make some corrections and I jump back in again. Oh shit. Jump out. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah. It's been my whole career. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that then um, after I left there, I, I I just had all these wins. I was winning and winning and winning and winning, and uh, you know I was just really doing great. I had this beautiful new home and nice cars, and things were great. And then I thought that all these things that were supporting me, like I was in a corporate structure, right? I could pick up the phone, and go like, uh, "What's the square root of uh, accounting?" You know, and somebody was be there for me. And so I was kind of lured by my ego into uh, opening a restaurant, a steakhouse down the street from the Capitol Grill in this old bank. And it was called Union Trust, uh, also known as Union Bust. And it was an abject failure. So I tasted failure 
And uh, Trust, yeah. yeah, wait. So tell, yeah. tell me again, how did you transition out of Capital Grill to Union Trust? Five year contract. Five year contract. And you and, were you were an owner, right? Partner. Yeah, you you buy in, um, but you know it's it's you're still in an employment contract, basically. Okay. So I was a Bef- full owner at, at Union Trust. Before we we talk about Union mm-hmm. Trust, I am yep. curious because you mentioned something that I think is really interesting: the idea of managing partners. I believe this is the future. I think that. As the industry gets more competitive mm-hmm. and as we continue to learn from the big guys mm-hmm. how to operate, I, I think that – I don't think you can do it alone anymore. The little no. guy has to act like a big guy. Mm-hmm. You need you need that level of, of excellence. Right. And I think the only way you can be, act like a big guy is if you attract onto yourself like, – like the point that you made, like – you weren't a numbers person, but no. you need the numbers person. Right. You weren't a chef, right. but you need a chef. Mm-hmm. You you were the culture, the why guy, the glue, mm-hmm. the coach, the leader, the energy, the energy. Yeah. The, usually, I think this person comes in the form of the front of house matrix, like the matrix D, right? The kind of person, D, yeah. like Danny Meyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you you can't do it alone to no. be competitive in today's world. Nope. You need a team. And in today's world, I think the only way you're going to attract onto yourself the team is if you give them stake in the business yes. to get those people. That's right. Yeah. And I think that this model and mm-hmm. the cup you're drinking out of right now, Uptown Social out of Charleston. I was just in Charleston. These folks. <laughs> um, it's the, oh, man, eat, play, have fun or something. Like, I can't remember. They're like the mother group, but it's out, based yeah. out of New York. Um, I apologize. But they, their whole thing is they give equity. They, they let their, their team but they don't they don't just give equity they they make their partners buy in mm-hmm. but they promote from within that's right they say you're really great at this we want to have you open a new restaurant right are you interested in becoming a partner yes the ebitda is a million mm-hmm. and at one point you need to give us $10,000 or right. whatever that works out to yeah. you know I had to give 20. Yeah. So like but it's a good way to it's get into is that how they took is that how they approached it yep Yep, and then you had to set, so you had to give twenty thousand dollars, and they bought stock, and and it was rare hospitality stock, and then they held it for you, and then it grew or it didn't, and they said if you leave, we keep your twenty grand. So listen, what do most chefs do? I'm pissed today. I'm leaving. Most managers, I can go, especially in this day and age, I can just go anywhere and get a job. It locked you in, and this is very important. Not only did it give me a sense of ownership and responsibility I created it helped you create this ownership mentality which is important but this is what's going on today that's a problem in our industry like remember those three components that Dan Pink talked about purpose mastery and and autonomy no one's getting mastery anymore man they just and I don't want to sound like a baby boomer about this because I have millennial children and I love their spirit. I think they have it so much more right than we do in many, many ways. But the bottom line is, is that in this market where you can jump all around and you're not locked in for five years and you have to grind it out and you have to get gritty, people aren't learning. They're not getting mastery and they're not learning how to be gritty. And because of that, they're all looking for purpose and meaning and they all want autonomy and work-life balance, which, by the way, is the biggest lie ever sold to the workforce. But that's the story. Now the story. They're not getting good. They're not getting gritty. They're not learning how to, to grind it out. And that's an essential part of success. If you want to be amazing, you got to learn 
fail. You got to learn to grind. You got to learn to get gritty. And you got to get really, really freaking good. You don't do that by bouncing around. You just don't. So when you say bouncing around, you're doing a year here, a year there. I think it's weird. I think I I, I agree 100% with you. But I think there's an evolution in a career. When you get started, I feel like you want to give yourself perspective. Yes. But eventually, you have to find a path, right? Something that resonates yes. with you, and you need to stick with it. Yeah. Um, but don't get me wrong. I had 11 jobs in yeah. 10 years once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'd, there was three and two, but I just kept bouncing because I would go in and go, mm, this culture sucks, and I would ba- bounce around. I didn't use the word culture. but right. So don't get me wrong. I've bounced. But I'm just saying, essentially, no one is really getting into that gritty grind. Right. You know, it's interesting because I agree. And, I, and part of what was going through my mind when you were talking is I feel like we live in a unique world, an, an unprecedented world, dare I say. Yes. Right? The new the, era workplace. Yeah. Where there's where evolution, like the way the right way to do things, I feel like is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, do you agree or disagree with that? Totally. I just, what do you, when I say that, what, what goes through your mind? What well, you, I just recodified what it means to be a leader, you know, uh, <laughs> because vulnerability is now at the top of my list and awareness, self-awareness, awareness of others. And I never used to use those words. Self-awareness, the peak of emotional intelligence. Yes. Yeah. Which Daniel, P- or Daniel Goldman. Are you familiar with his work? Yeah. 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 I love yeah. his books. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. The book on culture is amazing. He wrote the book on emotional intelligence. Literally. Yes. Literally <laughs> wrote the book. Yeah. Like yeah. Most 10 recently. years ago too. Yeah. Yeah. His book on culture is amazing. Too. Um, but I guess what I'm saying with that is like, I feel like we live in a technological world where um, I feel like the, 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 I don't know. It's almost like the exponential transformation of the world we're living in, it makes it hard to stay on one path. Mm. The idea of having a, a life career today, it like people are changing careers faster than ever because yeah. the world is changing. Yes. Like what, like if you got into the, the, the newspaper art industry 30 years ago, like you're not in it anymore. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's an extreme example, but that's a good one. You know what I'm thinking? Well, I know exactly what you're saying. And, and this is an economic issue. So starting in the eighties, when they started taking corporations, my father worked for the same uh, company for 48 years. Yeah. He came out of world war two and he went into this chemical company and he was a steno. And then they threw him out in the street and he became a salesman. He became one of the top salespeople in his, in this big company called American Cyanamid, which doesn't exist anymore. But what happened is when in the eighties, especially around the crash of 87, the whole contract with employees changed. It used to be like, you know, my dad would get a new car every two years because he was a traveling salesman and everything was taken care of. Literally retired a multimillionaire and never made probably more than like fifty or $60,000 a year because of his stock options. They really took care of my dad. And then the contract changed. And when the contract changed in the 80s, you know, when I hear baby boomers say... These kids today, they just, you know, they're shiftless. They're, they don't take responsibility. They're not loyal. It's like, what are you giving them to be loyal about? You're right. giving them nothing. They don't get benefits. They don't get this. They don't get that. Equity. Equity, right? So what are you talking about, man? So the, the contract changed. So the attitude of the worker changed, and it became about them. So we did that. We made that. We created that. And then we're, you know, us boomers are sitting around going like, what's wrong with these kids today? I'm like, that's what they said about us in the 60s, man. Right. You know? So, yeah, the contract changed. Right, right. Um, 
I think that was a good little rabbit hole we went into. But I, I did cut you short because you were getting into the next evolution, Union Trust Stakes. Yes. Um, so you you had this incredible career, but um, job right with uh, Capital Grill. Mm-hmm. What was in the, your mind where you're walking away from this just before? There feels like they're probably scaling at this point. Like, why? Why leave? Well, there was a whisper that they were going to be bought by this big company called Darden. Oh, and we were rare hospitality. We were like that mid-sized company. We were like freaking cool, man. Yeah, you know? and um, you know the idea of being with Olive Garden and Red Lobster, and and then you know I I had this I was I was get, again my ego was kind of getting the best of me because. You know, uh, it became the top grossing restaurant in Philadelphia. Uh, Budokan and us, wow. we would kind of, Stephen starts Budokan, we would, we'd, we'd kind of share that space a little bit. But Ned Grace is somebody who's on my, red, my, my radar. He, who is? Ned Grace is oh, yeah. he's the founder of, of That's right. Capital Girl, right? Yeah, Did you yeah. ever get to work with him? He was gone when I got okay. there. Yeah. Got he had, he, they used to laugh that he was floating around somewhere in Florida and he got, he, Yeah, he's still floating around. I can't find him because I've been trying to get him on the show. He's got to be up there. <laughs> he's, he's, I think he is getting up there. I'm running out of time. I got to get him on the show. Yeah, I think he's way up there. Yeah. And Gene Lee just retired like uh, a couple of months ago. I mean, hey, if you can make Gene Lee happen, he's still kicking around, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, maybe man, we'll, we'll talk see. afterwards. Yeah. We, uh, we were friends. I'm interested. Um, all right. So, yeah. Um, Union trust <laughs> failures. I yeah. love failures. Yeah, me too. We learn the most yeah, in right. failures. So yeah, take us right. through it. Well, you know, um, there was this gentleman um, and his partners, and they said, we have this space we want you to see. And they took me into this old jewelry shop. And it wasn't just a jewelry shop. It was a massive old bank that was built in like 1910 by the same guy who built the Ben Franklin Bridge, if you're familiar and he was a famous French-born architect, and uh, this building was just spectacular. It had 60-foot ceilings. It was just magnificent. And then for a few decades, it was a family jewelry shop, and it was like a, not just a jewelry shop. It was like the place where you'd go to you know, do everything in, in, in the world of jewelry in Philadelphia. So it had a great history. It had great bones. Um, and um, I was like, yeah, man, it's time to really do my own thing, right? Even though I'd been kind of doing my own thing in other people's worlds. A couple things. Number one, I didn't vet my partners. Um, and uh, they, our values were not aligned at all. And shame on me, but I did that. And there was this other thing that was looming. <laughs> M- meanwhile, I had, I had been a consultant, a restaurant consultant for about two years. I opened up this really cool place called the Waterworks Restaurant in the old Waterworks behind the uh, art museum. I'd done a several other projects. And then when I started Union Trust, uh, which was named the bank, by the way, the original bank, um, I was just, I was not, the the detail orientation did not kick in, obviously. And I didn't really vet my partners. And and this other thing was looming. It was called 2008. Mm. (laughs) So we built the most spectacular, gorgeous restaurant. Uh, we were way in over budget. Um, we just kept plowing ahead. Uh, I knew that I could build the sales and that we would be fine in about two years. We got private money coming in. We we we, we were just blowing and going, man. We were just like, it's going to just happen. And then one day, just before the crash, uh, the bank who was about to give us millions of dollars was bought out and they came to us and said hate to tell you guys but we don't lend to restaurants and by the way you know the economy is kind of shaky right now 
And we were like, what? And then that millions that we needed to get to the finish line after we did the equity raise vanished. Mm. And then we were hobbled. We got open. I built to this day. I mean, my wife reminds me daily, like, remember the team you built at Union Trust? It's like, yeah, man, it was the best of the best. We were, we were magnificent. Stole some people from the Capitol Grill, met some new people. We just, it was amazing. And, uh, but we were just, we, every given day, we're like, can we buy a six pack? You know, do we have money to pay the meat vendor? Um, well, it's kind of funny. We were hobbled. And it's, but it's also, I think the, the goes back to the significance of, of having a lane and staying in it. Yeah. And it sounds like you built a team. You probably pull financial numbers, people. Right, you knew you needed that. I'm assuming. Yep, yep. Um, but uh, I mean, I feel like it just goes to show that like you you need to be good at everything. Yes, right. And and what you were good at was the culture, the team building, mm-hmm. and that's what you know. You leaned into your lane, and when that's you can right. go all in on your lane, yes, you can go so much further. Yeah, and I my optimism blinded me. Like right. the thing that was my energy and my optimism, we're going to make it happen. Um, it blinded me and right. I was this, it's still there by the way. It's a, it's a catering hall now. If you ever look up pictures of the inside of, of union trust steakhouse and it's like, wow. Was that I, one degree? Uh, no, 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 Chesapeake is my client. Chesapeake. I helped help build that company. Got it. Got it. But they're, they're still my clients. I do leadership training there to this day. But, um, yeah, it, 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 uh, it's now Finley catering, I think, but, uh, and I'm glad it's still in, it's mostly intact because it was a, it was a just amazing steakhouse palace. So, you know, we hobbled along for another little while and, um, and, and and it was over. You can't deny the economy crashing, right? Like that, it was a big part of what, what was going on there. I'm sure. But was there, if you could identify a failure, if you think if, if there was another contributing factor, what was it? Um, inconsistent leadership, meaning I was the managing partner per se owner and I was supposed to be in charge of the culture. And we hired a chef who was also a partner and he had not uh, been reformed as an asshole. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but this guy was so out of control um, so inappropriate with the staff. So everything I was saying. Give me examples of what inappropriate is. Well, besides the substance abuse, um, just fits of rage, um, you know, physical stuff. Um, and I couldn't control him. I always thought I could control everybody, right? <laughs> you know, I thought that my magic pixie dust that I could sprinkle on people with values and culture would somehow. But I didn't have an HR department like I did down the street. At, at Capitol Grill where the HR guy would fly up from Atlanta and go, stop that. Uh, I have a contract and I will, you know. And it was just, you know, it it, it became about him and his, his ego and personality. And the whole team was looking at me like, what's going on? That was a big problem. And I, I was like, never again, man. I'm just not going to have that happen again. Yeah. Yeah. So... Union Trust Day closes mm-hmm. 2008, 2009? Yeah, more or less, yeah. Um, you, again, in this idea of tipping points and evolution, mm-hmm. what was what was next for you? Well, I realized that I just didn't want to go on with the restaurant thing anymore, that I wanted to consult. And I was a, um, I just, I'll be a restaurant consultant, but I hate a consultant. I was going to say, but you're not a consultant, you're a coach. Yeah, I when hated did, consultants. Why? They would come in, make a big mess, and leave. 
and everything would go be worse than when they left because most consultants are they were a chef or they were a manager or they were something and they come in and they just do that role and it's not sustainable like it it just they they come in and they charge too much money because they're trying to replace an income i had to replace pretty big, big income myself and they just uh they make messes and and it's not it's not cohesive well, and here's my take on consultants they all figured out how to do something really well right but not all of them they they figured out how to do one approach mm-hmm. but one approach doesn't work for everybody in the industry there is, one thing i've learned is that there is no one way to do anything Thank in this you. industry um so they try to force people into molds hey this is what worked for me. You mm-hmm. do this. Yeah. However, that person that you're helping as the consultant might not mm-hmm. have your strengths. Right. The way you did it might not be the best way for that person. That's right. And that's one of the things I've learned. Just trying to get somebody like, like I, I started today's conversation. I was trying to crack the molds, right? right. And learn. And right. then I think the biggest secret I've learned is that there is no mold. No. You know, it's so, it's so, what's the word? Malleable or just, it is. There's human nature and then there's everything else. Um, you you got to learn how to understand and help people to grow the way they need to grow, et cetera, et cetera, by understanding that human beings will only do what they want to do. And uh, how do you get them to buy in and feel a part of something and give meaning to everything where even if they're there for a short period of time, that they, they believe what you believe to some extent. Um, but yeah, so, um, I just went out and became a consultant. I was charging too much. I had one client. <laughs> so was this Doherty Hospitality Group? Doherty LLC? Hospitality, yeah. Got it. Because uh, that was that was creative, and um, and this this so the managing partner after me at the Capital Grow was a guy named Miguel Miranda, and Miguel and I were were you know I basically was his boss when he worked underneath me. I left. Uh, Capital Grill, he became the managing partner. And then I stole half his staff, right? <laughs> is, he, is he in Florida now? He is, yeah. Is he an accountant? Uh, he has an accounting platform. I know Miguel. Do you? Yes. My God. Uh, he's working with a, a Mexican concept out of there. Yeah. Now, I want to say Miguel Miranda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so Miguel, um, you know, I was like his mentor, tour mentor. Um, and... Um, so we did not see eye to eye for a while because I was that runaway rebel down the street, which was disrupting his business. Um, he was still the mighty Capital Grill. But um, one day he left the Capital Grill. He calls me up and says, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, my God. I, I didn't think we were friends anymore. He's like, no, I want to see what you're doing. So he came and observed me being a restaurant consultant at this Irish concept in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which, by the way, was in the building of a, that restaurant that I opened up when I when I be, first became that hybrid GM and, and chef. It was just coincidence. But anyway, he looked at what I did, and, and Miguel said, you know what you're doing is stupid, man. And I was like, how Excuse dare you? Me. You want to come work with me? You're telling me I'm yeah. stupid. And he was right. He said, this isn't sustainable. And he was the one, then we became one degree. Uh, we said, remember the one degree connection at, at Rare Hospitality where you could go into the store in Alaska and it was just, everything was kind of aligned. And I was like, yeah. yeah, man, it's my dream. And we, we started on this path of, uh, of uh, being coaches and creating sustainable results around someone's vision 
and then getting managers who believe in that vision, creating a value system that the team can be on their best day. And then, you know, what we called habits, we didn't call them systems. We said, we started studying human nature and realizing that habits take months to form. It's not a two week training program is not going to make somebody have mastery. So we started attaching the whole, you know, science of, of, uh, habit building and all that stuff. And then we started building it into the systems and, uh, so the, the two of us created uh, one degree, and our, one of our first clients with Chesapeake Events. Um, I have a photo. I mean, I'm gonna have to show you this, but I think he's working with um, Lilo's Lolis Mexican. Does that sound familiar to you? I don't know. Yeah, we 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 are now about both back at Chesapeake helping okay. coach, <laughs> uh, but he's he works remote, so I, I really don't know what he's doing now. I'm, that's just I think that's intimately. a small world. Um, but uh, one thing that you, you're bringing it back to with this idea of one degree again, and mm-hmm. you're kind of reminding me, and I don't know, she might actually be like competition with you guys. So I'm sorry if that's the case. I'm bringing her up right now. But Kathleen Wood, are you familiar with Kathleen no. Wood? But she talks about the one thing. That's, okay. that's her whole ethos is the what is the one thing? What right. is the what? Who are you? What is if I were to, to, to distill you down to mm-hmm. your purest essence, the elements that are you, what is the one thing? And then you get that clarity on the one thing, and that one thing becomes the leading edge. It drives mm-hmm. everything. And when I hear of one degree with you guys, I'm thinking about like uh, like a, a radial. Like you have 360 degrees, right? And the goal is to get on one radial, mm-hmm. get everybody going in the same exact direction, yeah. getting as narrow as possible. Mm-hmm. Is that how you think about it? Is, is, yeah, is yeah, because stacking it, energy. Yeah, Gallup wrote a book called "It's the Manager," right? So they realized, like, you could talk all you want about all these different theories and what have you, but you have a business strategy, and then you want business results. And in the middle is this character called a manager, and that manager, if he's not aligned and he doesn't buy in, and he's he's not that type of leader, you're never your your business promise is never going to come to fruition. Period. Mm. So you got to focus on that. That that uh, between strategy and and results is is leadership, right? So that is the the one degree connection, and then you want that to perpetrate throughout the entire organization. And it comes down to role modeling. It comes down to behavior more as a leader than it does anything else. And I'm not talking about everyone acting the same. I want you to be yourself, but you have to understand how to get people to give you permission to lead. You know, like um, one of my favorite quotes is. Uh, uh, by um, uh, Eisenhower, who, who kind of saved the world, right? Um, General Eisenhower, during uh, he was the head of D-Day during World War II, and then he was one of our presidents. That leadership is the art of getting people to do what you need done because they want to do it. <laughs> like that's if you're going to boil me down to to an essence that that is it. How do you get people to do what you want? done because they're totally bought in and what they call engagement these days, right? That they're engaged. The problem with, with engagement is that 75% Gallup does these polls, 75% of the population is disengaged. 75% of the people go to work every day and are miserable. How does that create profits? How does that create great brand experiences? It doesn't. So we got to work on this problem of disengagement. And the only way to do that is through culture and leadership. Yeah. How do you get people to give you permission to lead? Trust. Period. Um, it, it's, it's human beings. We, what we call trust, we have a fl- fight or flight center in our little limbic brains. And people in nanoseconds decide whether they're going to trust you or not. And if they don't trust you, they're going to work for you for your money. 
mm-hmm. or they'll be there or not. They're not going to give you their full, beautiful, magical selves. Um, so you have to be consistent. And that consistency comes down to connecting with people before you direct them. Miguel and I came up with this mechanism like connect and direct. You got to connect first, not not direct. So we would watch managers and like, so, you know, one manager would be like everybody's best friend and everybody loved them, but nothing actually got done. And then somebody else was just like that bulldog, right? Like, yeah. you know, and it, you got to balance those two. Right? <laughs> you're going you to make, make me flip this conversation. I'm going to need some counseling right now no for problem. me because I feel like you could help me because I, I literally like, like to say that Restaurant Unstoppable's unique selling proposition is trust. Yes. Trust that we use word of mouth, the most trusted form mm-hmm. of marketing in just like, where, like who do I talk to next? Like It is the glue of human experience. I'm facing the situation where I'm, and the other thing that I do that helps build trust is I don't promote tools or services unless they've been referred to me by somebody on the mm-hmm. show, right? That's another way. Because if I'm not using it, how am I going to be able to vouch for this tool True. or service? So I'm finding what happens when your core values, your integrity is your biggest strength, but also your biggest weakness because it, mm-hmm. it, it gets in the way of you taking opportunity to get the resources you need to grow and scale. Well, let's go open another union trust and violate our value system and see how that goes. That's what happened to me. Uh, you cannot violate your own value system and think you're going to be successful. You might make money. I don't know how sustainable it would be, but if you're a passion, purpose-driven per- human being, unless you're kind of a soulless business type, um, you, you could be happy in that realm, but it's not the way people are wired. So if you go outside of you, what you believe and you are a soulful individual, you, you'll suffer somehow. Maybe yeah. it's emotionally, maybe it's financially, but you're not going to be aligned with your higher self. What happens if you have the best intentions in the world mm-hmm. and you, you gain trust and mm-hmm. you say, come with me and people mm-hmm. get on board and then you leap like you like to do, mm-hmm. like I like to do leap first, you know, ready, fire, aim. Right. And then figure it out. And then you realize that you bit off more than you can chew. And mm-hmm. all the people that came with you are being sank with you. Yeah, it's 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 the risk you take <laughs> in leadership. Right. Um, I, I a lot of people lost money, at, and I friends. I mean, I had a, we had a family member who stopped talking to me. Uh, um, you know, we didn't recoup the, the losses, and it was it was it was tough. But that's the risk you take. Or you could, you know, I could just still be washing dishes, you know. Uh, but I want to do cool shit. So that's risk taking. Right. If you're risk averse. Um, you're going to struggle. It's an entrepreneurial journey and that's around building trust in something and then taking a a dire risk and, um, you know, and then never giving up hope. Right. I like, I, I kind of, I don't know if I've ever heard this from anywhere else, but my, my biggest fear is becoming a con man Mm. because I think that a lot of people who have good intentions over promise over dream say come with me and then it doesn't work out and what is a con man it's somebody who preys on the confidence of others Mm. but a leader is kind of a con man because they in a sense need the confidence of others well we're talking about a dream here right we're talking about dreams which aren't real they have no substance 
and there's something you envision and you get people to believe in it and you all go along and guess what? It may or may not work out. And uh, so dreaming is an essential, you know, element of everything that we see around us. And um, yeah, a lot of times I say to my wife, I said, sometimes I feel like, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I didn't use the word con man, but I have, well, first I have unbelievable, um, uh, you know, imposter syndrome. Well, man. Yeah. You're preaching but, to the choir. But, but I also, I, only, I always <laughs> feel like everything is so damn good, man, that how can this be real? Like, I don't deserve this. Like, I'm doing really good here. I'm still happy. I'm still happening. I make money. I host the number one restaurant business podcast, and I've never owned a restaurant. Yeah, right. You don't think I feel like a con man? Sure. <laughs> you don't feel like no. I feel like a, but you a con have man, something. But a, a imposter. Yeah, right. You, you have something. And, and that something is, is special and unique to you. And, uh, yeah. But when you think you feel like a con man, that means you have values. You know, it's narcissists you have to worry about. The people who are not self-aware, who... I also read a book on narcissism, too, and I show some traits. I'm not going to lie, man. Me, too. Uh, But I think most leaders do because they're so... Here's how I feel like I'm a narcissist. I don't do things for me, but I am very selfish when it comes to my my mission, my cause. Me too. And get the fuck out of my way if yep. you're not going in the same direction. That's a level me. five leader, by the way. Right. But that's also a narcissist. It is, but level five <laughs> leaders give credit and 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 don't take it. Right. They take responsibility when shit goes wrong, it's their fault. When good things happen, they give credit. There's somebody running for president right now again, and you know, I'm not gonna get political here, but that's that is that mechanism, that mechanism where always the victim, never responsible, always right, never wrong. That's not human. Right. right. <laughs> you know, the whole thing's about being human, right? And making connections. That's why we exist to connect and to do good things for others. That's, that's the only meaning I can figure out here. Um, that, that I've come up with in 67 years and that ain't it. <laughs> right. But I'll be honest, man. Like I'm not good right now. Like my stomach is messed up. Like I've really? been going to the doctors for the past like two months trying wow. to figure out. And I think what happens is I'm just taking it all in my gut, you know, like I'm taking it all in my gut. I I'm like on a smoothie diet right now mm. and like spinach. Yeah. And it's, what do you think's going on? on? I think it's stress, man. I think it's, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm bringing this up now because I feel like there's probably who, what I'm saying right now, there's probably hundreds of people going yes. to me too. I, I am I going to fail? Am I am I making promises I can't keep? What's how, well, what's your advice for me? What's the narrative? Like, wh- how do you overcome that? It's the Stockdale paradox, um, which is also part of the Good to Great study. <laughs> they, um, it, it really is. Um, you know, you're super passionate about this, right? Yeah. You believe in this and this is good. And what are you really doing? You know, what is your why? You know, you're, you're trying to share insight with people in the, one of the toughest, toughest industries on the planet. Inspire, empower, transform the industry. And I think I believe this. If we transform the industry, yeah. we transform the world. So do you, do you really believe that? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all you need. And the rest is just mess. Like we're imperfect. We're we we make messes. The entrepreneurial journey is an absolute disaster sometimes. But if you stay true to your values, um, but what I will say, if you feel if there's something going on, there's something not aligned, right? Maybe you're compromising something. And um, the Stockdale paradox is is the idea that you you face the brutal facts. We got to wake up every morning and say this is fucked up, 
and I've got to face the brutal facts about this, but I'm not going to give up hope. Most people don't face the brutal facts. They don't want to work through the hard stuff. And then they just live in hope land. That's how I screwed up at Union Trust. I was like all optimism and I wouldn't face the facts that the chef was an asshole. I wouldn't face the fact that maybe my partners weren't the best business people. And I was clouded. If you can just wake up every morning and stay true to your value system and your belief and your passions, face the absolute brutal facts and make tough decisions around, around what you value and what gives you integrity and builds trust for your brand. And you just, just and, but don't give up. You, you, you got something. Yeah. Well, thank you for that advice. Sorry for flipping the, flipping the, the, the script <laughs> you on you. Just got a little bit of coaching for free. Yeah. And well, not just me, but I'm sure that that resonated with, with a lot of oh, people. Yeah. So thank you. Thank Absolutely. you very much. There's one other stop along your way we haven't touched on mm-hmm. yet. Zach, Zaxby's. Yeah, Saxby's. What is Zaxby's? Saxby's is a coffee company that doesn't really think it's a coffee company. So um, Union Trust. Um, Let's actually use that as a teaser. We're going to take one more quick break sure. to thank our sponsors. Thank you. And then we'll be right back. And then we also have to talk about um, enlightened leadership. I think we've been yep. talking about it, yeah. cir- circumnavigating mm-hmm. it, this entire conversation yep. and where we're going into the future. Yep. Uh, but we gotta, we'll take one more quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reachify. Why are you still taking phone calls when you have online services that can support the majority of your callers' needs? Redirect your callers so you can focus on the food and the guests across the counter. Reachify is powerful and flexible. For example, with advanced automation and call deflection, Reachify prevents missed caller opportunities and diverts callers to online actions such as online ordering or reservations, which means orders come in faster and more accurately. Reachify delivers safe and secure communication across multiple platforms with intelligently routed messages to the right people, thereby increasing accountability within the team, allowing your in-office and mobile teams to stay connected. With Reachify, you save hours of labor expense by reducing dedicated phone staff. As a matter of fact, some Reachify users have seen a reduction in 40% of their phone staff. That's pretty good. And how's this for a cherry on top? There are no long-term contracts. That's awesome. Reachify. Be in control of the conversation you want to have when you want to have them. Hop on to reachify.io slash unstoppable to find out how to revolutionize the way your restaurant does business. And when you use that link, get one month free after onboarding. That's reachify.io slash unstoppable. We're back. We got about 13, 14 minutes left together. We got some stuff to cover. Uh, Zaxby's. Saxby's. Um, Saxby's. Thank you very much. I, there is a Zaxby's. Yeah, this is with a Z that's a chicken <laughs> company. Yeah. Saxby's. Yeah. Um, how did you grow here, if at all? Nick and I met in a time when we had the same partner. I was at Union Trust, and this, this partner was also his partner, and we were both outside of our value system. And... Uh, he uh, was being pulled into franchising, which if you want to build a culture, not for nothing, but it's very hard to build um, a culture in franchising with the overlord model. And um, one day his dad was walking down the hallway in this office where I was giving a speech about values to my team. And uh, he walked by, I will never forget, I saw him walk by his dad and then walked back. His dad and him worked together. And he went to Nick and said, you got you to talk to this guy. Cause I think this is what we're missing. And I met with Nick and 
um, I shared with him my philosophies about leadership and, and, and all Nick ever wanted to do is build culture and, and build community. That's why he got into the coffee business. He didn't even drink coffee and he wanted to build community and the direction these partners were taking him in was just about making money. So he pulled away from them. He broke away, pulled back, wrestled, uh, his business back and then, um, hired me and Miguel to help him codify his culture. So we created uh, make life better, which is the motto, uh, the why of, of Saxby's started out just as a coffee company, tried all different kinds of things. Now he's an experiential learning company where he works exclusively now with universities and colleges throughout America, building these, ex- these experiential learning coffee shops and people go in and buy coffee and they do what other people do in coffee shops, but they're run by students who are getting credit and learning firsthand how to have hands-on um, uh, leadership experiences. So he really lived his why, right? And re- most recently I went back in, 16 or 17, 2016, 17. And we redid his value system because the company had changed since I originally helped him do that. And uh, he's just, he's just doing amazing now. And he's a great leader, a great guy. They're also, I noticed that they're a certified B Corp. Yep. And this is something that I think we're going to see more of too yep. going into the future. What is a certified B Corp? Well, they have purpose or purpose driven organization, right? So, and they get certain tax, you know, benefits out of that, but it, it is, it is, is, um, it is a not-for-profit. You know, I go back and forth on this. I feel like uh, that, that just sounds like conscious capitalism to me. <laughs> but like at the same time, why can't capitalism... I think there needs to be like a fundamental shift mm. where we, change, we, we start to collectively as a society value something other than maximum profit yes. and maybe say maximum impact mm-hmm. where the focus becomes on what kind of... How can we be... How, how do we gauge our success? Mm-hmm. Is it on the, the amount of profit we make or the amount of lives we change? Yeah. And I think when you when you start looking at it like that, you realize that the more lives you change, the more success comes. Yes. Uh, but why does it have to be not for profit? Like it's almost like we, it's like it's in that model. They're saying that profit is bad. But profit is good because profit allows you to profits your cup overflowing. Profits yeah. having the means to create mm-hmm. opportunity for other people. Yeah, there's still money being made, right? Right. Yeah. So, so it's not like we're purposely not making. Profit. I kind of feel like it's bullshit. Because why don't we just call it conscious capitalism? You that know? would be a nice new codification, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. So let's start a movement, man. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like I don't know. It's like I don't. I don't really know much about the world of. You're a rebel. I can see me. Yeah. I like to poke the beast. Dude. Me too. I challenge. It's, it's challenge. Ch- like so, our core challenge is, that status quo. We have integrity. We are students. Mm-hmm. We are educators. Mm-hmm. We are collaborators. Mm-hmm. We are communicators. We show up. We have fun. Are the restaurant unstoppable core values? Love um, it. We are students. In my mind, is we don't take what we see on the surface. Mm. We do challenge. Yeah, you dig quote. down. Yeah, yeah. And um, I like that about you. Thank you very much. Um, we do have to talk about enlightened hospitality. Yep. Or, yep. Sorry, yep. enlightened leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is that? This is a, a, a term you've Well, it was or? called servant leadership, right? And then like any other great thing like culture, servant leadership, it becomes hackneyed and everybody's like, yeah, this is like last year's thing. Um, things become trite, right? So enlightened leadership is just a way of understanding that leadership is counterintuitive. It's not your darker impulses to make people do things just because you want them to. It's by digging into engagement, uh, lowering disengagement, uh, being a great leader. So what does it mean to be a great leader? A great enlightened leader has these several attributes. 
Number one is they connect. They have the ability to connect with people. That's trust building. And how do you build trust? You build trust by being vulnerable as hell. And like I, I, when, when I was a chef, I didn't want the team to know that I couldn't do certain things, right? Not only not cook, but no, I could cook, but, um, but that I would might not be good at this or that or whatever. And the minute that I would break down and say, I need your help to the team, they rallied. They were like, yeah, he's real. So vulnerability is not oversharing or crying with your team or going out drinking with them and throwing up on yourself. It is being authentic. So it's connecting and building trust by being authentic and vulnerable and open, being incredibly self-aware, and then get back to that responsibility thing. The biggest mistake most leaders make is that they don't take 100% responsibility. 100%. Oh, it's really his fault. No, it's his fault. Well, it was the market conditions. Oh, it rained. No, asshole. It's you. And until you take that 100% mentality of responsibility, you will never really break through and build the kind of clan or tribe that you really need to, to, to do great shit together. That's what i believe how do we learn vulnerability can we learn self-awareness because mm-hmm. self-awareness like i we already mentioned earlier yep. is the peak of emotional intelligence yes. can emotional intelligence be taught yeah um that's where pi comes in for me what is pi uh the predictive index is a talent optimization platform that i stumbled upon about two years ago i was using this one uh, platform, they went out of business. And um, I always wanted to, if you tell somebody, you know, if you're trying to have a tough conversation, like somebody doesn't have integrity, right? <laughs> How do you tell somebody they're a liar, right? How do you tell somebody that they're too dominant? How do you tell somebody that that they, they work too fast or too slow? The conversation is going to be tough. The only way to do it is to get them to say, you know what, I see that and recognize that in myself. PI is a six minute digital test you take. It's an assessment. It's not a test. And it has these four factors. What is your level of extroversion? What is your level of dominance? What is your level of, of, of patience and formality? So it starts, it starts with, um, with the dominance. I am a, I have high dominance. I'm an extrovert. Uh, I like to move fast and I like to break the rules. That's called a maverick in PI. So I'm a maverick and other people have high precision, high detail orientation, and are very introverted. They might find me freaking annoying, right? And that's where the human grind happens. I think I'm a fellow maverick, my friend. You, you, <laughs> no, you're definitely a maverick. You got, you got that maverick. I can send you the assessment. Yeah, I'd love it. So I'm a certified PI person now because it gives me this tool where I can say, what do you think of that? And the person looks at it and goes like, oh my God, that's so me. Great, let's talk about that then. Your dominance <laughs> is killing the team. You know, you don't approach it that way. But if you get somebody to say, oh, these four factors, which they determine are these four factors that really matter in the workplace. If you can get somebody to say, yeah, I think I recognize that about myself. You are 10,000 miles down the road. That's self-awareness. Yeah. And then there's coaching guides in there. There's relationship guides. You can build a team inside of there and get the right people in the bus. It's an extraordinary platform. I'm absolutely in love with it. And I use it as one of several tools, but that's the one for self-awareness. For you me. say they went out of business? No, no. The Gabriel Institute uh, was an assessment I used for years and years and years, and they went out of business. No, PI is thriving. They're uh, doing great. Yeah, yeah. I would think, I think getting somebody from 
PI on the show would be really interesting. I can get I can get or, you my coach. He's or, fantastic, Mark. He you he is he'll do this a lot more justice this yeah, conversation. Yeah, I think that would be a, a really great what's his last name? I'm making notes. Renke. Renke. Yeah. R E I N K E. He is he is the man. R E I R E I N K E. Yeah, and he's a captain, by the way. Captains are like Mavericks. Got it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we wrap, we got to right. wrap up because you, you have a call in a little bit. Mm-hmm. One thing I do like to talk about before we say goodbye is where are we headed? We're, we're, how do we go into the future intentionally and not? I think the industry has been very reactive for a long mm-hmm. time. We react to the consumer. Right. I think we need to get a, stop reacting to the consumer. Yes. We reacted ourselves into right. a corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the best thing you can do is build a great culture that when people come in, it's the experience um, uh, economy, right? I had the opportunity to meet uh, Joe Pine, who wrote The Experience Economy. And we're still in the experience economy. So if you go into a Stephen Starr restaurant, I know you talked about Stephen Starr in one of the podcasts I listened to. You know, he creates experiences. And, you know, the, the food is is great. Everything's great, but it's an experience. You go in there and you're, 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 you're taken away. Human beings are the ambiance in restaurants, right? It's that vibe that you feel. So... No matter what we're doing, no matter what the food trends are, with it, with it, we're going into mocktail time now, a lot of mocktails, um, you've got to still be able to create a hospitality culture. You've got to be able to create this feeling that's created by, only can be created by human beings and an occasional robot. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, and, and so... Are you? <laughs> no. We have to get ahead of, of the values that change generationally. Every, like I talked about this just five years yes. ago and then COVID happened. Boom. The and then it all, everybody had an existential crisis and then they all went, why are we doing this business? And, and it all blew up. Every generation has a different set of values. And if you don't get what's coming down the road, like the millennials are now the, in 2020, the millennials took over. Yeah. You don't understand what Gen Z wants. And it can't be like, like us boomers is like, if your name is on the paycheck, I'll say we'll do whatever you want. It's over, dudes. Human beings are going to be more and more autonomous. They're going to want more things. You've got to be a better trainer. You've got to have leadership training. You gotta you gotta even if you're a small company, you've got to invest in people beyond the money. You've got to make it cool. You gotta make it you gotta make a place yeah. that's like a laboratory, right? And um talking you know, about and, peak and watch down the street what's coming, man. Yeah. Study these young people and see what's happening. Because they're gonna they're gonna be your problem or they're gonna be your benefit in the future. Yeah, Pete, uh, Chip Connolly Pink uh, Peak is a great book that kind of touches on what you're talking I'll about. Have to check that out. It's a it's basically, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Oh yeah. Essentially. Yeah. You know, he, sure. he breaks that down. But what he says is exactly what you're saying is that the base of that hierarchy are your physiological needs and mm-hmm. then beyond that is security. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, that's where that's where people focus on giving you security. Yes. But where we are today is that people want to self-actualize. Yes. And that's the peak of emotional intelligence yes. and, and, and uh, your purpose, your why, whatever you want to call it. Um, and and that's what drives the new generation. Yeah. And I, beyond I, that, it's growing, right? Personal mm-hmm. growth and being seen, right? Yeah. So if you, if you, if you focus on the top, of the, the hierarchy of needs, that's how you attract yeah. to yourself. My dream is that people like me who help create culture and meaning at work, create value systems and help bring strategy and people together into business results will be a common thing, right? Stuff that they figured out in these big companies years ago, uh, these Y-based companies, 
<clears throat> that actually do amazing things. <laughs> the bottom line is, is like people still hire me and it's like, oh, we're going to do this little thing, you know, and then it's going to be, and then he's going to go away. It's like, no, this should be implanted in your business plan. Like, I'm going back. That's to my dream. We are in the business of people development. Yes. And that is probably been one of the biggest aha moments. Mm -hmm. It's not about me. Right. It's about everyone else. Yes. And if I make it about everyone else and where are you going, what do you want and mm -hmm. how can I help you get there? That's the, that's the magic sauce. It is. Yeah. I've loved this conversation. I do want to, Thank before we, we wrap up, I do want to get one more nugget out of you and then sure. we'll, we'll get your contact information. We'll Thank have you. you call somebody out. Um, Autonomy, work-life balance is the biggest lie. Yes. Elaborate. Well, um, we've been sold this idea of work-life balance, but how, if now, listen, if you want balance, please, yes. But it's counterbalance. It's not, it, you cannot get the flywheel going in life. It, it's, it's physics. And if you're like, you know, work-life balance would mean you're working 20 hours on and 20 hours off, right? I yeah. mean, and that's the, the lie that's been sold to an entire generation. No, you got to work your ass off, get the flywheel moving, and then you could take your, your – your, your, and then jump back in. It's not – It's it just doesn't work. Right. So I, I just see a lot of – I don't want to say young people, even other people who are searching for this balance that – and then they're like, why aren't I making a lot of money? You know, why aren't I happier? Why don't I have a nicer car? It's like, because you got to work your ass off. The You're still in capitalism. The the, there's, 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 the obstacle is the way mentality of there's, there's, what's the word I'm looking for? The solace, um, freedom in doing the work and getting lost in the work, you know? And, yes. And it's not work. <laughs> yeah. And like, and it's your life. Yeah, like there's almost because it's like a meditative state, mm -hmm. and, and when you're when you're recognized for have, being good at what you do, that's rewarding. Yeah, you know, and that's that's being seen by yes. your by your tribe and yes. being recognized and valued by your tribe because Absolutely. you bring value to the community. Um, yeah, and it takes effort, and it goes back to really quickly that purpose, mastery, autonomy from the Drive book, right? For by Pink, like they're not getting that that mastery stuff. They're not getting the flywheel going. They're not getting the momentum. The physics isn't working in their life. And they're, and then they're just, they, they're disappointed. They don't know why. Ed Doherty, this has been a great conversation. And episode 1008. How do we connect with you? If we really enjoyed today's conversation, uh, you are a coach mm -hmm. now. That's your profession. Yes, we want to work with you. What is the best way to connect? Well, um, uh, .com. Uh On there, you can sign up for Ed's Notes. It's a weekly blog that I do. And uh, that's a great way to get information. I send that out every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. And the more I would love to get a bunch of people on there because it's always a great conversation. And then I share things like your podcast. I shared on my uh, oh, thank blog. you so much. Yes, thank, I did. Thank you. Hopefully, you share this Greg. episode too. I will. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, who do you respect and admire in the industry? Somebody who, if I got on the show, you'd be like, I have to listen to that episode. Uh, in in the in in people I know, you mean? Yes. Um, well. Honestly, the the team at Defined, uh, this what they what what uh, Al calls that three headed monster. Those three gentlemen, very different. They're just they have this mutual respect and love, and they really deeply care about their team, and they put the team first. So Al and and Nick and Greg at Defined, um, uh, I'm I'm in love with those guys. Right? You know, now. I had them on the show, right? That's how. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. So I'm getting and, them back and, on the show. <laughs> yeah, and then and then my good friend Joe Volpe from Cheska Events, uh, I've known now for 15 years. Another great leader. Um, yeah, these people just they just never they have this core that they just 
they keep driving and they, they can evolve with what's happening. I just love them. Again, this is episode 1008. Any tool or service recommended on the show, we'll do our best to link back to it. And we'll have a summary of the, of the discussion over there as well as how to connect with Ed Doherty. Ed, there is no question, my man. You are unstoppable. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Pleasure. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Ed Doherty, for coming on, getting vulnerable, and sharing your incredible career. Man, there was so, so many great things that came out of today's conversation. Uh, I am happy that we got you on. And honestly, I, I kind of, this is exactly what gets me excited. Like we are finding these people organically. We are doing the work. We're following the leads. And when you, when you just keep your work honest and you, you listen and you follow up, good things happen. And through the series of just listening, we are being delivered to predictive index, which is a tool that's been on my radar for a while. Something I've been wanting to learn more about a test or not a test, but an assessment I've been wanting to get and it's, it's happening. So Ed was able to connect us to predictive index. Uh, I was able to get my own behavioral assessment done. And really what predictive index does is it helps you make sure the people you're getting the right people on your bus, but also getting them in the right seat. And really this is such an eye opening. It was scary how accurate this test was when they started telling me about my results. And um, I I like to think I'm a pretty self-aware person and I just feel like they nailed it. And uh, we're having everyone on my team go through and take this uh, uh, behavioral assessment. Uh, And uh, I can't wait. We're recording it all. We plan on sharing it all with you guys. So this is some really exciting stuff that's happening. And we actually have Matt uh, Popesel, the vice president and the quote unquote godfather of talent optimization coming on the show. He's scheduled to record in just a week. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and the plan is to, to unpackage a lot of this stuff over at restaurant unstoppable network. And speaking of the network, we have our two first live events scheduled in the network. It's been a while since I've had these live events and I'm so excited we got them coming back. So the first one, August 7th, we have aligning guest expectation, team motivations, and your marketing strategy with Dave Domzalski and Dave Nitzel. And uh, if that name Dave Domzalski sounds familiar, it's because he was recently a guest on the show. His partner, Dave Nitzel and Dave Domzelski came back on the show to talk about hospitality DNA. That episode is coming out next week and uh, they're giving away 10 of their books. Five of them are already gone. So what you got to do to get these books is get a RSVP to restaurant unstoppable network uh, events. So first sign up for the network. Once you're in the network, RSVP to this event. We still have five books that we're giving away. Uh, also the first, the next 50 people, I think we actually had a couple already sign up, but the first 50 people to uh, sign up to the network, with this new uh, resurgence of the network are going to get the first 50 people are going to get um, a, a shirt. And if you opt into the one year plan, I will throw in a hat and a mug. So you got to get over there. You, you got to. So right now, if you sign up for the network, you're going to get your first 30 days free. That's the value of $30. You're going to get the hospitality DNA book. I think that's at least a, a $20 value. And you're going to get a hat, a shirt, and a mug. That's at least another $50. We're paying you to join the network right now. It's a great time to get into the network. You will not regret it. 
Callum Miola is doing an amazing job over there. Uh, super grateful to have her on my team. Also want to say thank you to Jared Parisi for his editing and copywriting and Anna Tazin for her executive counsel. Anna Tazin with the Good Kind Counseling, uh, counseling Consulting. And I also want to tip my hat to Chris, Chris Earl Hanley, who has been helping me behind the scenes with technical uh, editing, video editing. I'm taking a lot of this under my own wing and uh, having a friend who is well-versed in the world of video editing has been incredibly valuable. So it takes an army. I'm so grateful for mine. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.